Today's scripture reading comes from 1 John chapter 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Well, if you'd open your Bibles to 1 John, we're going to be uh, going through somewhat of an introduction. We're starting after going through Joshua, 24-ish sermons. Um, it It was a really incredible study. Uh, for me personally, I enjoyed it. Uh, I haven't really honestly gone through Joshua like that prior to having to preach it, so it's been awesome. Um, had Easter, and now we're going to go verse by verse through all three letters of 1 John. Well, actually, uh, I think the third or fourth sermon is actually 2 John, and the last sermon will be 3 John. Um, we believe, uh, the elders that is, that we need to begin each series with a little bit of an introduction to set the stage for uh, how to understand the book and where the book is coming from, whatever we happen to be studying. And so a lot of what I share today uh, is going to be, uh, pieces of it are in this booklet that's put together for you. There's a bunch in the back. Um, I think there's still some left, and we'll get some more. Uh, but it has uh, a lot of things you can use personally for your personal study, for your group study, to study with your kids. Uh, in the beginning, actually, it goes through uh, just how to study your Bible. If you're not really uh, familiar with studying your Bible, you've done the old, like, I think I'll read this today, and you just kind of open up. Instead, uh, we'd encourage you maybe to go through First John. Uh, during the week, the sections that we're going to be going through, it shows you for the next 14 weeks what we're going to do, and it breaks it down how to study it in four easy steps of just kind of the process. And then each week is in here with questions, and there's a couple appendixes or appendices in there that gives you some other information that uh, will be helpful, we hope. But First John uh, was decided some time ago, and I'll warn you as we, as we start to go into it, that uh, these letters are some of the shortest in the New Testament, but that doesn't mean um, that they aren't, in which they are, some of the most weighty in all, I think, of the New Testament, if not all of Scripture. Uh, they're very simply constructed. Uh, in other words, they're not very difficult to understand. They're very simply Uh, Simple to read, even if you were to read it in the Greek translation, very simply constructed that way. Simple to read, simple to understand. So for better or worse, it's actually very difficult to misunderstand what John says. And he says things very plainly. That's why I think it's actually a very convicting book. It's similar to the book of James. If you ever go through that, this is very in your face. This is what uh, God's truth is, and, and it's very challenging. And so... John uh, intended to address churches that, you know, existed well over a couple thousand years ago. Uh, God, though, wrote through John, intended for our world and us today very much so. The Apostle Paul wrote in uh, one of his, well, actually his last letter, he wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 4 that there'll be a time when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they'll accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And so 
we've been living and are living very much in that time where there's all kinds of different truth options out there that are being offered, even new uh, alternatives or versions of Christianity that are being made kind of candy-coated, easier to swallow by taking out the parts that might be offensive, everything from um, some of the most held doctrines and orthodox theology that uh, are scary and uh, an affront to our emotions to you know, changing uh, even Paul's letters into uh, a gender-neutral type of way to read it. So it's not as, you know, again, offensive. So that's happening today. We've got all kinds of false teachers, quite frankly, different shapes, sizes, coming out with books and blogs or getting public forums on TV or the Internet to promote a worldview. And if you listen carefully, a lot of them, even if they're spiritual or even Christian, are trying to promote this idea that sin doesn't exist, at least we don't talk about that, and therefore there's no need for actually a Savior like Jesus. Uh, Some come in in sheep's clothing and just kind of brutalize the Scripture, and you think, man, this guy's teaching the Bible, but they actually are teaching it in a way that's totally twisted, and they sometimes twist it to somewhat humanistic ends. What I mean, it gets very man-centered, and they're just trying to look for for a better you type of mentality, like how to uh, feel better about yourself. Sometimes it's flat out just psychobabble of trying to affirm self-esteem or what I like to call self-pride. You get in touch with your, you know, your inner child and, and that's the reason why you feel bad about yourself. It's not actually sin or anything that's there. Uh, it's, it's from your past, if you will. And that amounts itself out into kind of behaviors that are questionable, and then they start redefining traditional type of institutions like marriage and other things as uh, archaic and uh, outmoded. So heresy abounds everywhere. And so when Paul talks about that people are going to accumulate all kinds of false teachers, they're there. They're all over the place. But John is dealing with the same thing. It's not new. Ecclesiastes says there's nothing new under the sun. So this happens often, all the time. And John here the beauty of his letter is that he doesn't go in, in, in approaching these false teachers and begin to attack their morality or their logic or anything. He begins right at the heart of the problem, which is Jesus. 2 Corinthians 11 says that there is another Jesus, another gospel, and another spirit. And so what he does is go right down to the most important truth that there is, and it's the answer to the question of, Who is Jesus? That is the beginning of cults, beginning of all kinds of religious problems, beginning of weird truths where they pervert who actually Jesus is or who he is not. Denial that Jesus of Nazareth is the historical, bodily, final, complete revelation of God the Creator is, according to John, The sin that leads to death. Denying that or those facts. So our theology, that's a big word, our doctrine might be a scary word, our teaching, all of that matters because that inspires behaviors and attitudes that have not only temporal but eternal consequences. Now, like a good pastor, John affirms the gospel in this letter And he is trying to assure the Christians, 
especially the young Christians that he's writing to, exactly what it means to be a Christian and what being a Christian should manifest itself out in your life. And so he gives us these tests. The first book is like a a series of tests, not only to test the false teachers that are coming in and saying, hey, believe this, this is what's true, it's to test you. That's why it's such a convicting book. It's easy to take a test and go, yeah, dude, you're a false teacher. But then when you turn that test on yourself, it begins to be difficult to take. Here's the test, and you either pass or fail. We either accept God's word as authoritative, or we act as our own authority. This is the kind of thing John's going to say. We either are freed from sin in Christ, or we are enslaved to sin. There's no like, I'm kind of managing sin. You're either freed or enslaved. We either walk in the light, confessing our sin, being honest about who we are, declaring our weaknesses and the grace of Christ, or we walk in darkness and hide our sin, pretending. It's a test. We either love our brother or hate our brother. But I kind of like my brother. No, no, no. We either love our brother or we hate our brother. Speaking about the church, fellow believers, Christians, love or hate. We either have eternal life or we have eternal death. We either possess and are guided by the Holy Spirit, or we follow demonic spirits. And I know we think you say, like, well, we follow demonic spirits, my head's spinning and I'm puking up. That's not necessarily the case. But James even says there is wisdom from above and wisdom from below. There's no wisdom in between. We either believe in Jesus Christ, or we do not. And in the end, it comes down to whether you believe God stepped into the world, became a flesh and blood person named Jesus, bore our sins on the cross in our place, died, rose again to remove God's wrath, to take away sin, to destroy death and Satan. It is a life and death test that we should employ on ourselves, not others. Okay, So when we take this book... It's going to send you through a filter that's difficult. John. Let's talk about John a little bit. We understand who this guy John is who's writing it. And so this is, this is the intro piece that's important before we hit the first four verses. John was one of the 12 original disciples of Jesus. And he had a brother named James. And there's a couple different Jameses in the Bible. The book of James was written by Jesus' brother, who didn't believe Jesus when he was in his ministry, but later came to faith when he saw resurrected Jesus, which would change anyone's mind. But John and James are brothers apart from Jesus' brother. Okay, And John and James are part of a smaller circle of three guys within the twelve, which was Peter, James, and John, who were kind of the the leaders, if you will, of even the twelve and and eventually the church that was birthed. And they're all, all three of these guys and others are all fishermen, James and John were fishermen for their father, Zebedee. So they were actually blue-collar guys. Following the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, as the church was birthed, James, the brother of John, was the first of the twelve disciples that was martyred. He was beheaded. You read it in Acts chapter 12. John was the last disciple to die. He was not martyred. Okay? Now, as a young disciple, James and John are interesting guys. Jesus named them the Sons of Thunder. 
okay? And there's a reason for that. They're very passionate, zealous guys. When John's writing this, he's like this 90-year-old guy, but he's a 90-year-old fireball, okay? So you have to think about that. You've probably met those kind of people that are just like 90-year-old, still kicking, will throw down Jesus' word, just like, yeah, they're tough, they're strong, they're passionate, they still got energy. That's John. He was called a son of thunder because, well, we don't exactly know why, but we kind of guess. If you read in Luke chapter 9, there's an interesting passage where they were very passionate for Jesus. And they went into a Samaritan village, as Jesus had told them to go out in different groups and go preach the word. And if they deny you, just kind of wipe the dust off their feet. So they go into the Samaritan village, and these people reject Jesus. And it really ticks off James and John. Here's what they write, or what they said, in verse 52, I think it is, of Luke 9. He says, And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. There's all kinds of history there, but they didn't like the Jews, that being the Samaritans. Verse 54, And when his disciples James and John saw it, so they were visibly uh, rejecting Jesus somehow, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. I mean, can you imagine that? They don't love you, Jesus. We'll call fire down right now and burn them all up. Okay? And one's when you're like, dude, you guys are psycho extreme. On the other side, you go, these guys loved Jesus, and they were passionate about Jesus. So that is the guy you have who's writing these letters. But more than that, you have John who, who, who wrote the Gospel of John. It's different than the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's very unique. It's kind of surprising. It gives us a little bit of a surprising picture of Jesus, different than the others, because he has a little bit of a different purpose, that being he wants to prove that he's God. And he gives us a very distinct picture of himself in that book, which is weird. In the Gospel of John, it introduces a man, without naming him exactly, called the Beloved Disciple. And it's clearly connected with John, although I said it's, it's, he's never really stated this is John. But the Gospel presents this Beloved Disciple, John, as possessing like, kind of like a best friend, very close relationship with Jesus, different than the others a little bit. And not only do we see a couple things in the Gospel of John... We see him reclining on Jesus' bosom at the Last Supper. So he's sitting next to Jesus, because they sat differently, obviously, back then. Not only do we see him entrusted with the care of Jesus' mom, as Jesus on the cross says, you take care of my mother, speaking to John. He's the first one, because he's a little bit faster than Peter, to enter the tomb after the resurrection, He's the one that when they're in the boat, they look on the shore and see someone, and he recognizes it's Jesus, and Peter jumps in the water and starts swimming to shore. There's a special relationship between John and Jesus. And when Peter gets on the shore after they have a little talk, he asks Jesus, that's Peter, he asks Jesus if John is going to live until the second coming, because there's been hints of that. And Jesus is like, dude, it's none of your business. But the reality is John lives a very long time, longer than the rest of them, but not that long. At the time of writing these letters, he's probably about 90. All the other apostles had been long martyred for their faith in Jesus, and he is 
he himself survived uh, an attempted boiling in oil uh, that happened, and he had an extended exile on the, an island called Patmos that is where he received the revelation that we know as the book of Revelation from Jesus. So now he lives in Ephesus, most likely, and the churches that John had started in the region are now being infiltrated from false teachers that are bringing, as I said, a different gospel that is attractive, but it's heretical. And they're starting to destroy the church. They're starting to, to branch off and start their own church. Now, most people in the churches that John is overseeing, this 90-year-old passionate guy, have never met Jesus face to face. They may have never met any eyewitnesses other than John, but most likely they received their gospel, their teaching, if you will, about Jesus from the teaching of the apostles. And so wolves come in, they begin to attack these young sheep that, that don't know everything there is to know And again, they begin to start their own church. And as they go off on their own church and people are leaving their church, they start going, well, maybe they've got the truth. What's going on here? And they start to question their own faith. They start to question their own salvation. They start to question whether they really have the truth. And so these guys, uh, what happens is um, they allure these true Christians out of the church, uh, telling them that they can free them from their sin, that you can be known as completely sinless and never sin again. They are telling them stuff like, we're going to give you secret insight into understanding Jesus. You're going to have a deeper spiritual experience with us like you've never had before. Sounds attractive. So understandably, these young believers start to follow and, and, and they are, some are joining this, this demonic craze, if you will, that has absolutely no sound doctrine in it. It might, it might have seemed appealing. What it is, is it's not a new thing. It's nothing new, actually. This is the same guys that John wrote against when he wrote his first gospel. It's a group of guys called the Gnostics. And I won't get all the details about the Gnostics, but what you need to understand is that these basically guys believed that there were mysterious secret truths that they got through revelation that would free them from all these things. Secrets. They also believed that material world The earth and the flesh and creation was broken and sinful completely. Therefore, for Jesus to come down, the God-man, and to take on human flesh is not possible. Because God would never take on something so sinful. It's impossible for him to do that. So what they did, in essence, was deny the, the core central truth of Christianity, which is called the Incarnation. That the Son of God did put on human flesh. And you hear the reason why they did that. And so, John knows that if the incarnation is not true, if Jesus is not fully God, if Jesus is not fully man, He could not be the Savior. If Jesus only seemed like He was God, or if only seemed like He was a man, then Jesus was a liar, He was a fool, And these guys are believing something that's totally false. So this is serious to John. So John writes these letters, basically, and you'll see it hit over and over. You see in the first couple verses here, we'll hit right now, that there is a historical reality to the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, who is his best friend and his God, which is weird to even think about. But John 
not only affirms these central truths that we have to, we have to believe as a Christian. You are not a Christian if you do not believe that Jesus is God. You are not a Christian if you do not believe Jesus died on the cross for your sins, that his blood was shed for you, and that it's a blood that is eternal weight because it's ultimately God's blood. You are not a Christian if you don't believe Jesus rose from the dead for you. And he goes further to say that if you don't have that kind of good doctrine, sound doctrine, sound theology, your life will be a mess. Good theology will produce a good life. Bad theology will produce a bad one. Now, I'm not defining good for you at this point. I know your mind might be going crazy with that. But let's see what John says in verse 1. First four verses there set the tone for the remainder of the book. Now that you know who John is, what the situation is, 90-year-old dude, he writes this, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. From the very first words of this book, it doesn't read like a letter. If you read all the other letters in the New Testament, you know, there's a greeting, there's an introduction to who I am. He starts off like a sermon. And he starts off because he's got an agenda. And his agenda is to basically establish credibility as authoritative to teach. Now, he establishes himself not only as this loving shepherd, because that's what's going to happen. He talks about the love for the brother. He talks about his children and caring for this church as a loving pastor should. But he also says, I've got authority more than any of those wolves that are coming in. Like all complete pastors, okay? And you'll see pastors fault on either side maybe extremely too much. John is the beloved disciple and he's a son of thunder, okay? You can't have a pastor that's just a beloved, loving, nice, gracious, ever priestly pastor unless at the same time he's a son of thunder, There comes a time when lines have to be drawn, when the man has to stand up and say, this is what God's word teaches, and this is what it doesn't teach. It's got to be both. And that's what John is. He's the beloved disciple, and he's the son of thunder at the same time. And so he comes up, and he starts like a little more son of thunderish, if you will. And without apology, he reminds his readers of his unique position. Okay, The we he talks about, he says... We have heard, we have seen. The we refers to the disciples who were at the beginning when Jesus began his public ministry. Mark 1.1 calls this the beginning of the gospel, at the baptism of Jesus when he comes. John, as I said, is the last man standing of the twelve disciples, of the ones who walked closely with Jesus, who lived out the gospel message with him. And John is the most Credible teacher living. And that's what he wants to establish to begin with. But I think what's interesting is that when John confronts these false teachers, as 
when anyone should, these guys that are dividing the church, he doesn't pull his kind of pastor card, eyewitness, disciple, you know. He doesn't pull his disciple card so that he can attack the methods, the policies, the whatever of this new little church that's starting over there. That's not what he pulls it out for. Instead, he concerns himself first and foremost with bad theology. Bad theology. Specifically what he says, or he calls the word of life. And the word of life, the Bible also talks about this as the word of the kingdom in Matthew 13, the word of the salvation in Acts 13, the word of reconciliation in 2 Corinthians 15. We know it as the gospel. That is where we challenge. Not on the colors of carpets, not on the different ways that people take communion, not on the different types of music. We divide on the gospel. That's when we say, you are no longer on my team. And so he pulls the card and says, the gospel is the problem. And John here has not just experienced the, quote, word of life secondhand. He personally heard the word of life. He saw the word of life. He touched the word of life. He was there when the word of life was made manifest as Jesus of Nazareth, a real historical person. And because, though the Romans invented a lot of different things, they hadn't invented tape recorders or YouTube yet, personal eyewitness testimony is the most reliable evidence for ancient history. These guys in a court of law would, over and above, beyond a shadow of doubt, beyond a reasonable doubt, would prove what they saw. So John intends for his first-hand testimony to, to strengthen the faith of his readers and to weaken the influence of these false teachers who today, not necessarily back then, are armed with their books and their websites and their radio programs and their television shows and all those things that we see. We go back to the eyewitness testimony. Why do you believe what you do? Who is Jesus? We go back here. The word of life, though, is not just some attractive, attractive message about Jesus or uh, some kind of better church that makes things um, more palpable or more enjoyable, a new kind of Christianity. It is Jesus himself. It's not just some new advice on how to live a better Christian life. It is Jesus himself. And false teaching and bad doctrine and spiritual depression does not begin with what it means to be a Christian and how to live as a Christian. That's not where it starts, by perverting that. It starts by having an unbiblical answer to who is Jesus Christ. That's where it all begins. Wrong answers about Jesus equal wrong answers about God. Wrong answers about Jesus equal wrong answers about God. So we wonder why we talk about Jesus all the time, because it is the center, he is the center of all things, and if you miss him, you miss it all. I remember I was, when I was student teaching, I was being taught by a guy who was, I guess they're called my master teacher or whatever, and he was some kind of weird Buddhist dude. I mean, he was a very nice guy, but he didn't really know what he believed, but he kind of grabbed pieces of, pieces of Buddhism and Hinduism, and you got karma here, and he had like nirvana over here, and it's like, what exactly are you? 
But we dialogued about it, and he, he mocked me a little bit. He was, a, he was an older guy, very smart, very sharp. And I just said, look, what it all comes down to is what do you think about Jesus? Who is he? All the other stuff doesn't matter. It all begins with Jesus. So he says, we, I, I was there. I've got eyewitness testimony. And he says, the you, the you here refers to, he says, we delivered it to you or testify or proclaim to you. He's writing to people that are probably 60 to 70 years removed from when Jesus was resurrected and ascended. And in that short amount of time, that's only two generations, right? In that short amount of time, they have forgotten that the gospel is not about some myth. Some, think about that, some story. Now we're 2,000 years removed from there, and we question that. A lot of us in here aren't really sure if Jesus was a real person, though there's more evidence for his existence than yours, okay? But they're only 60 years removed from it. They have a guy who's an eyewitness, and they're still going, yeah, I don't know if Jesus really is who he said he was. Imagine what we're doing 2,000 years later. What it amounts to, quite frankly, is that Christianity becomes twisted by those who are Christians into a message of morality. When it's supposed to be the message about a man named Jesus. And it's interesting if you were to ask people who are not believers, who have not been, quote, churched, who have just kind of observed people who call themselves Christians, what they would say or describe as core to a Christian. What is essential to a Christian? What are they about? My guess is that they'll have a way of living, a way of morality, or something that the first thing they talk about is not Jesus. Jesus, the man who came and died. Jesus, the man who claimed to be God. Jesus, who rose from the dead. This is a direct challenge that John is saying to the Gnostics who say they got this secret knowledge that they say God has declared to them, this new way of thinking. John says, there ain't nothing new. It's Jesus, and I was there. We don't need to go searching for spiritual experiences, for eternal life has actually been made manifest in Jesus. God revealed himself in creation, then he revealed himself in his word, and then he revealed himself in Jesus. Fully and completely. But this is where it gets saucy. Chapter, or verse 3 and 4. So he explains like what the problem is. It's the proclamation. It's who Jesus is. And then he goes on to say, let me tell you why it's so important. The reason he is proclaiming it all. And he says this, That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that, here we go, so that, this is why we're proclaiming it, talking about Jesus, you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Now remember, these people, you'll see later, are leaving the church and starting their own one. 
He's saying, so that you'll have fellowship with us and know that our fellowship's with God. Then he continues, and we are writing these things that your joy may be complete. So the stated goals of his writing, the stated goals of this letter, he says it a couple different times, but to begin with a letter is the hope for his people to have fellowship and joy. Fellowship and joy. True fellowship, okay? This is where it's going to feel like a stretch. But true fellowship and true joy are intimately connected with true doctrine. Okay? True felt you can have all kinds of fellowship and community. Don't get me wrong. But God ordained, God designed, God blessed community and fellowship. God designed, God ordained, God desired joy for us to have comes from having and begins with good, sound doctrine. Now, the immediate purpose he states, we'll, we'll take them individually, is fellowship with us, is what he says. Fellowship with us. Now, the us that he is referring to is the fellowship that was created by Jesus and continued with the apostles and their teaching. Jesus is the first one that said, we're going to have unity together, and he said it in his prayer in John 17, and John was there listening to it as he prayed because he recorded it in his own gospel. In verse 20 of John 17, here's what Jesus prayed speaking about us and not just his 12 disciples. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you the Father are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Okay, catch this. Fellowship as a church, as the church, as a gospel community, is not an addendum, okay? Church is not just where Christians go and hang out together on Sundays. Unity and gospel community and the fellowship is actually one of the purposes of salvation. It is bringing us together as the church. Jesus died for the bride, not just for individual people. For the people that would be called the church. And unlike a lot of different communities out there, there's tons available to the world. Okay? The church is not unified by the fact that every one of us is a certain age or that we're all a certain gender or that we're all men or all women or that we all dress the same or that we all talk the same or that we all like the same things or that we all have the same shared story of abuse in our past. It's not shared by the fact that we're all artists or that we're all blue-collar workers or some other aspect of culture. That is not what unifies the church. What unifies the church, the one thing that brings all of us together, 
or should bring us all together as a fellowship that looks very diverse. When you plan a church, a lot of the strategic guys ask you, like, well, who's your target? I didn't even know how to answer that. I said, people who don't believe in Jesus? I mean, that's kind of weird. What they want you to do is go, well, tell us who Joe, Joe non-believer is in Marysville. Then the map him out. Well, he has this many kids. He dresses like this. And so you're supposed to, like, gear your church that way. Well, how many people does that exclude that don't believe in Jesus once you decide that? The diversity of the church is beautiful so that you have a guy that, quite frankly, you may have never pursued a friendship with, ever, because you're like, dude, you dress different than me. We talk different. We think different. You're artsy. I'm not. We're brought together in an incredible family because of our common belief in the gospel. That's what unifies us so that we can be different and we can see that person across and go, dude, you're a hand? I'm a shoulder. Sweet. We're all part of the same body. But you see all these communities getting together like, well, we have have true community. And they're all artists or they're all, you know, lovers of Horses or something. I mean, they're all the exact same. And some of them end up spiritualizing those groups. You're like, dude, you're all hands. Or you're all shoulders. You're all eyeballs. Where's your, where's actually your diversity? The beauty of the church is it's supposed to be diverse. We're supposed to have, you know, come on, talk about our family. As my, as my kids are raised, I see each kid is so stinking different in the most beautiful and terrible ways, Right? My daughter is very similar to me. She will eat anything. Okay? We enjoy peanut butters, mayonnaise, and pickle sandwiches together. Okay? She likes sour cream just about on everything. So do I. She will try things. I go, here, try this. She'll eat it. It's great. Landon, he's kind of in between average. Like, he'll try something, but he's more like a, um, he'll try it if there's a, a cost-benefit to it. Tell me what the treat is. You know? And then I'll maybe eat it. Fisher? You're like, nope, not eating it. Well, that's it for dinner. I don't care. I'll starve. Okay? He's picky. Fisher, very, uh, you know, cerebral, wants to dialogue, ask a lot of questions, argue, debate a lot, lots of why questions. We've come to the point, my parents are like, hey, let's, something new now. What's that? I'm the king of this castle. When I speak, it is law. Therefore, I'm no longer answering the why questions. Why? That's all. I'm just going to stare at you. I'm not going to answer it. Well, why not? I'll answer this one. Because it's law. It law has been spoken. Okay? Landon, he's an emotional, like, extremist. Okay? The most sensitive. I mean, we get, like, stories from his teacher, like, oh, he's the nicest little boy. He's, like, taking a little bit of allowance he gets and goes buys books at the books fair for his teacher for her classroom. Just, like, super sweet. Then he gets home and he's like a demon sometimes, okay? <laughs> Screaming, you're like, what? Why am I getting these awesome reports about how sensitive and sweet you are? You go in there, you peek in the window watching him, and he's like, it's like a little halo on his head, you know? And then he gets the horns when he gets home, okay? And then Emerson, Emerson's like a little mom, okay? You know the boys. You know what the boys are doing, Dad. And, you know, just correcting everything. She's carrying uh, Hudson, our, our newest boy, around, and just. They're very different, okay? Like a family. The church is like a family. 
We're very different, but the thing that brings us together is gospel doctrine, gospel truth, that you know you're a sinner. As whatever your story is, it's colorful and different than my story. We each have our own chapter. Some have horror stories, some have comedies, but they're all tragedies ultimately, right? We're all sinners, but we're brought together in this, in this cooperative. And sometimes, I kid you not, I look across in some of the community groups and things, we go, dude, we are just a weird bunch of people. Because we're different, and that's a good thing. We need the blue-collar workers and the artists and the old people and young people and the educated and uneducated. And what happens is people become so prideful, they come in like, this community is not for me. Why? Because it's not like you? That wasn't God's intent. God's intent was to bring us and unify us together with his truth, not with some level of affinity that we all look and dress the same. But John goes a step further to say, Life-filled fellowship apart from gospel doctrine isn't even possible among people. Because ultimately, the only fellowship there is with God is centered on the gospel. To have fellowship devoted to the apostles' teaching, John would say, is to have fellowship with the Trinitarian God. Now, this doesn't mean that you don't have relationships with non-believers because they don't believe the truth. On the contrary, we have relationships in order to love them by giving them the word of life that we received. That's why we have, that's, think about that. If you have a friendship with a non-believer and your ultimate hope for them isn't that they will receive the word of life. If you are a non-believer here, that's what I hope for you. That you come to know Jesus. We could be friends, there's nothing wrong with that. And we can be friends before, during, and after. But my hope for you, whatever I do for you, is that you will love Jesus. Does that mean I'm going to preach to you 24-7? No, but I will at some point. So we have friendships with non-believers. We don't distance, oh, you don't believe what I did. So no, that's not what God sent us to do. And this doesn't mean that we can't have a relationship with believers who have different methods or styles or overall flavors with us. There are different flavors of, of gospel-centered churches that don't work for me personally, that make me awkward, feel uncomfortable, and there are some that will come here and go, we feel weird here. They love Jesus, I love Jesus. Just different flavors. Nothing wrong with that. That's good. I don't know how many of you have been to the Cowboy Church. Okay, I met the pastor, fantastic guy. I would probably feel right at home because I'm so stinking bow-legged, but the rest of you, you know, unless you put a cowboy hat on, you might be kind of lost. I don't know. I've never been there. But I imagine it's a different flavor. The truth is, with believers, there are, however, fundamental truths of faith. If denied, or worse, taught against, preclude me from calling you Brother no matter how nice you are or cool you are, or how many times you tell, me a Christ, you're, tell me you're a Christian, if you deny the gospel, the identity of Christ, I cannot and will not call you brother. So fellowship comes as a result of doctrine. It's intended. It's one of the purposes. But John also states a secondary purpose, and we'll close with this, which is joy. You notice this is progression? You have the true proclamation, which leads to true fellowship, which is intended to lead to true joy. 
That's the progression that John gives us. And there are probably few people here who immediately connect doctrine with joy. <clears throat> you think of theology, you think that's like root canal work, right? Bad doctrine, though, hear me, please. Bad doctrine. Bad truth can cause spiritual depression. It can cause spiritual depression. It can cause physical depression. It can cause an overwhelming sense of despair. Bad doctrine can cause you to feel meaningless, purposeless. It can, it can cause you to have guilt that's not supposed to be there and so many other things. Jesus himself said that the truth, which is simply another way of talking about biblical doctrine, sound teaching, the truth is what sets men free. Turn your Bibles to Romans 6. It's an interesting verse that you may have not read before. In Romans chapter 1, in Paul speaking about the depravity of man, the fall of the world, says that men exchanged the truth for a lie. That was the problem. It wasn't that they didn't have truth, it's that they accepted a different truth and followed it. And when Paul is talking about being freed from sin, you notice what he says, you are freed too. In Romans 6, verse 17, I believe, it says, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching or doctrine, to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. Being freed from sin, in some sense, is being freed to truth, being freed to gospel doctrine. Because when we are not free, when we are slaves to sin, we are following a pattern of the world that is a set of doctrinal beliefs. And Paul doesn't say here, when speaking about committing to sound doctrine, that it's just the mind. I'm not talking about becoming some theological arguer and debater that, that argues every little theological point and never stops talking about theology. He talks about it from a commitment of the heart. A commitment of the heart. Gospel doctrine is the firm foundation that enables us to weather any physical, emotional, spiritual trial. Gospel truth is what encourages us when we fail, and it humbles us when we succeed. Gospel truth is what carries us through the trials. It is what we use to combat the, the lies of Satan. It's what saves us, what protects us, what guides us, what gives us hope and contentment in this life on the way to the next. And I'll close from a quote from a pastor named Martin Lloyd-Jones, who is a great pastor, wrote a great book, you should probably read some point, called Spiritual Depression. This quote's not from that book. But it speaks of the same thing. Listen carefully. I hate to end with quotes, but it's so powerful that it hit me hard. In speaking about the importance of doctrine for our joy. It says, one of the first things you are to learn in this Christian life and warfare is that if you go wrong in your doctrine, 
you will go wrong in all aspects of your life. You will probably go wrong in your practice and behavior, and you will certainly go wrong in your experience. Why is it that people are defeated by things that happen to them? Why is it that some people are completely cast down if they're taken ill or if someone who is dear to them is taken ill? There are wonderful Christians when all is going well. Sun's shining, the family was well, everything was perfect, and you would have thought that they were the best Christians in the country. But suddenly, there's an illness and they seem to be shattered. They don't know what to do or where to turn. And they begin to doubt God. And they say, well, we were living the Christian life and we were praying to God and our lives have been committed to God, but, but look at what is happening. Why should this happen to us? And they begin to doubt God and all His gracious dealings with them. So do such people need a bit of comfort? Do they need the church to simply, as a kind, tranquilizer? Do they only need something which will make them feel a little happier and and lift the burden a little while they're in the church? Their real trouble, he says, is that they lack an understanding of the Christian faith. Doctrine. And so begins our series in 1 John, which quite frankly is pretty much a New Testament introduction the doctrine. Our series is called Assurance, and we are preaching these books to our church for the same reason that John wrote them to his, to assure people of the true identity of Jesus Christ, to assure people how to find eternal life in Jesus, to assure people how to find fellowship in the body of Jesus, and to assure people of the joy that comes with a deep, deep, devotion to the gospel of Jesus, namely his sinless life, his substitutionary death, and his resurrection. That's what 1 John's going to be about. And it's going to hit you hard because he might reveal some things that you don't know or maybe know but don't actually believe. And I pray that even as you take communion today, you will understand that as you do so, you are declaring what you believe doctrinally. You are declaring that you believe Jesus is who he said he was, fully God and fully man. And that is the most important thing you can confess and believe.